I know that when I first spoke about Thailand, I mentioned quite explicitly that I would not touch the Thai monarchy because we wanted these episodes aired in Thailand. We've gone on and done just that in this episode because we speak with the journalist and political commentator Mr. Andrew McGregor Marshall, who's currently based in Edinburgh, but spent a major chunk of his life working in Thailand and is an expert on the Thai monarchy. The conversation itself covers the Thai monarchy, the history of how the monarchy has consolidated power in Thailand, the less majeste law, the current Thai protests, and what the future of the monarchy might look like. It's an incredibly interesting conversation, primarily because a lot of what we talk about cannot be found on the internet, and incredibly insightful analysis coming from Andrew, and I would urge you all to listen to it. So here's our conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode where I'm joined by Mr. Andrew McGregor-Marshall, who is the author of Kingdom in Crisis, a critical documentary, a critical commentary on the Thai monarchy that was instantly banned in Thailand. And today, as a result, we're going to be talking to Mr. Marshall about the Thai monarchy and about the present day Thai process. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I think I want to start with the monarchy, especially after 1932, when there was a switch from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy. In other constitutional monarchies across the world, including the UK, you see a relegation of the monarchy slightly outside the public sphere, outside the political sphere, to a to just a placeholder status whereby they just hold face. Uh, how has the monarchy in Thailand managed to retain power in the political sphere for so long? Well, it's really interesting, Ishan, because as you say, in 1932, supposedly um, the monarchy just became, was given a symbolic role and put under the constitution. But the important thing, and one of the key things to help understand Thai history since then, is that the royalists in Thailand never accepted the uh, revolution of 1932. And they were determined to try to regain power. So we've seen a constant struggle since then with... Um, conservative royalists in the elite, plus a lot of the bureaucracy, plus, of course, the military for most of the time, really struggling to, to reassert the primacy of the monarchy. And certainly since the late 1950s, um, we saw the monarchy being given a more, uh, you know, a, a, a much stronger role. Um, for a long time, it was subordinate to the military. Um, the military was really the key power in Thailand and used the monarchy to legitimize itself as a kind of figurehead but over time, the, the monarchy and the royalists even managed to, you know, rein in the military and bring the military under their sway. So, you know, a, a good way to understand the constant conflict we've seen in Thailand for so many decades, all of these military coups, these changes of government, you know, all these protests on the streets of, uh, of Bangkok time and again, it's really a battle between Thais who, who want real democracy and want to bring the military and the monarchy under the constitution and the royalists on the other side who've been trying to promote the power of, of, of the monarchy. And at the moment, I would say that the, the monarchy and the palace are clearly the most powerful institution in Thailand. And that's why we see it as a focus of protest today. 
What about the process of indoctrination, especially towards young people? Because in your book, you talk a bit about school children being indoctrinated and proselytized to idolize the Thai king and idolize the Thai monarchy. What does the process of indoctrination look like and what is the legitimacy of the monarchy based on today? Well, I mean, for several decades, there was a concerted effort, as you say, to try to promote the monarchy with quite, you know, organized propaganda. Um, this was also heavily funded by the United States during the 1960s and early 70s in particular, because they were trying to combat the, the spread of communism around Southeast Asia and around the world. And they believed that creating a cult of monarchy would really help prevent the spread of communism. So a personality cult was built around the former king, King Kumipon, and he did become immensely popular and revered in Thailand, but it was partly through indoctrination. So, you know, when Thai children start school, the history they're taught says that everything that's good that's ever happened in Thailand was because of the kings of Thailand, who really led from the front, they developed the country, they were geniuses. So people used to say that King Kumipon was you know, a, a man of immense wisdom and talents. You know, he was, he was able to lead the country. He developed us economic theory to help Thailand. He was supposed to be an accomplished painter and, and jazz musician and so on. And children are taught this right from the start. Um, they're taught to bow down in front of royalty. The practice of prostration, crawling on the ground when a royal is in your presence, which was ended back in the, in the 19th century by our previous king, um, that was brought back. And so for many years, all Thais have just been taught right from you know, the earliest days at school that the monarchy is, is what keeps Thailand together. The monarchy is the reason for everything good. And for a long time, that was really widely believed. And anybody who dared question this faced severe criminal charges under the Les Majesté law. Um, what's quite interesting now is that because more and more younger Thais have access to social media, and the work of journalists like me who've been trying to promote an alternative view of Thai history, um, we're seeing many more people starting to question this, and that's quite a remarkable development. It is, and it looks quite promising given today's protest. But you've hinted at this up until now, which is there was a slight vacuum in the monarchy between the 1950s and the 1960s, when there was aggressive re-establishment of the monarchy in the 1960s, because after King, I think, Anand Mahidol, there was a brief period where the military reigned supreme in the country. Did that lead to an entire generation of people just not being indoctrinated at all? Or was there still some form of mild royalist indoctrination going on? I think there was always quite a sense of royalism amongst, among many Thais. So after, I mean, after the 1932 revolution, um, the king, who was, who was the Rama Seven in, in, the, in the way that the Thai kings are designated, he ended up abdicating a few years later because he really didn't you know, like these curbs on his power. King Rama Eight was, was just a child when he became king. He was living in Switzerland, so there was a huge vacuum. Uh, and then Rama Eight died in, in, in very mysterious circumstances. In 1946, he was, he was shot in the head in the Grand Palace in Bangkok. Now, this episode has never been properly explained, but from my research, it, it seems clear he was shot by his brother, who became the king, who was King Kumipon, the previous monarch. Um, it was almost certainly an accident. The two boys enjoyed playing with guns, and it seemed to have been a terrible accident. But um, so once that had happened, it seemed that really the, the royal family was, you know, it seemed hard to see how they would come back and, and restore their power. Um, so for a long time, there was military factions who were mainly in charge in Thailand. 
who just saw the, the monarchy as a figurehead and really ignored the king, King Kumipon. When a prime minister came to power, kind of Sarit Panarat in, in the 1950s, he was the one that really started restoring the monarchy. Um, and at that stage, that was when the royalist propaganda started being pumped out. But because many Thais you know, were unhappy with the idea of military rule, and because for a long time it seemed to many Thais that the monarchy was actually a curb on the military rather than being an ally of the military, I think that helped sustain some sense of royalism among many Thais. Um, you know, they, they used to be contrasted what they saw as more benevolent kings with the rather more malevolent military. In which case, in that vacuum, and especially in the run-up to before the monarchy superseded the military in public opinion, why didn't the military just get rid of the monarchy? Why did they try co-opting the monarchy back in the 1960s and 70s? Well, I think they certainly tried to sideline the monarchy to some extent, but they did see the power of having the monarchy as a legitimizing force. Um, it looked much better to ties than having, you know, just a, a, a military that taking full power. So even, even some of the, you know, some of the leaders who, who overthrew, I mean, it almost goes back to 1932 when there was this revolution, the monarchy was supposed to be brought under the constitution, but they, they shied away from, from um, you know, pushing the, the monarchy out completely. They felt it was important to retain the monarchy. And, and they did believe that it was a unifying force for ties. So it, it does show that over time there has been this, this historic sense that, you know, ties do need a monarchy and, and they were able to, to utilize that. So, you know, the, the, the Thai monarchy has been remarkably resilient over a century and a half when, you know, monarchies around the world were swept away or, or really lost all their power. The Thai monarchy is actually swimming against the Thai. It's managed to increase its power. How is the monarchy maintaining its legitimacy in the public? Is it either, is it God endowed and is it a deified legitimacy or is it a legitimacy due to fear? Well, it's really changed because under the previous king, King Pumipon, he was genuinely revered and most Thais were genuinely very heartbroken when, when he died. Now, I would argue a lot of that was due to the indoctrination that we talked about earlier, but it's still, it was still genuine reverence for the monarchy. Um, that's completely collapsed since the death of the previous king. And that's one of the really the most important developments for understanding Thailand today. Because the current king, Jirongkorn, he's always been highly unpopular with Thais ever since he was a teenager. They just never liked him and he was always unfavorably contrasted with his father. Um, so there was great trepidation when he became monarch and he's somehow managed to be even worse than, than most Thais were, were fearing. Um, there's been one scandal after another. You know, he's, he's onto his fourth wife now. He has a harem of women in Germany. Um, he spends money, you know, really without thinking. Well, King Pumipon, well, one of the ways he was revered was that Thais said he wasn't greedy. He, he famously, Thais were told that the king was, was so abstemious that he used to take special care to squeeze every last drop of toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube because he didn't want to waste any. And even some old tubes of toothpaste are on display in some, in some places in Thailand to, to show um, how King Kumipon was, wasn't greedy. He, he spoke about conserving money. Meanwhile, the current king is, you know, he's flying his private 737s around Europe. He's rented an entire luxury hotel in Bavaria. He's spending vast amounts of money that comes from Thai taxes. 
So there's really no more reverence for the monarchy, only among older Thais who haven't been following social media and still believe the propaganda. Among younger Thais and in the country in general, it is, as you say now, based on fear because people dislike the king, but they're also terrified of him. And rightly so, because we know that there's been several people thrown in jail on the orders of the monarch. There have been several mysterious disappearances of um, activists around Southeast Asia. Um, there have been mysterious deaths in the king's inner circle of people who displeased him, and they they end up dying in, in rather murky circumstances. So there's a great deal of fear, and that's really what's maintaining the grip of the monarchy at the moment. That makes sense. Uh, going back to King Bhumibol and his long reign of, on power in Thailand, if he was revered and if he was a public figure in the way that he was, and he controlled power on legitimizing the the legitimate political actor, as it were. Why was the politic of Thailand so unstable? Why did it get overturned so many times, especially when the king had given legitimacy to the incumbent government? Well, that's a great question. And I think it goes back to the conflict I mentioned earlier, that throughout Thailand's modern history, there's been this grand conflict between the royalists and the military who wanted to maintain a grip on power and other Thais who wanted a more democratic system. So for a long time during King Pumipon's reign, um, you know, he mostly was wielding moral authority and um, he didn't have real power. The real power still lay with, with the military. Um, now, when Thailand was being ruled by military dictators, as it has been often during its uh, modern history, the king was kind of a, a figure who could curb the excesses of the military to some extent, and he would sometimes speak out. So even though he had no actual power, he did have this sense of moral authority and, and you know, military governments had to pay lip service to that. Um, but over time, especially after, you know, in 1973, when there was a student uprising and the king appeared to back them. And in 1992, when there was another uprising, largely by the Thai middle class in Bangkok against uh, military rulers, and the king again appeared to intervene and, and cause peace. That was when the king's authority really increased and he was much more able to influence events. But the reason for the instability, I think, was partly this conflict that was going on and partly the king himself, contrary to what many Thais were taught, he was never a supporter of democracy. Um, he didn't like the idea um, when he seemed to, you know, set the conditions in place for a brief experiment with democracy after 1973, he quickly became highly disillusioned. He thought it was a terrible idea. And this led to one of the most awful events in Thai history in 1976, when students at Tamasat University were massacred. So you had a king who was never really comfortable with democracy. He was often vacillating. So military and, and royalists were always able to try and grab power back. Um, then there might be bubbling up, you know, popular resentment and, and things were swinging back and forward. So it, it's quite a common misconception among many people who, who look at Thailand. They think, well, look, the, the King Pumipon gave Thailand stability. But as you rightly say, when you look at the facts, it's been anything but stable. It's had some of the, it's had probably more military coups than almost anywhere else on the planet over the last century. Um, and this is really because of the struggle that's going on between these opposing sides. And the fact that Pumipon was never a supporter of democracy, he, he undermined democracy repeatedly during his reign. Yep. And seeing as the military and the king are in cohorts with one another, as they were across the late 20th century, and they are mm. pretty much now, especially because now you have 
direct regiments of the military directly reporting to the palace as opposed to reporting to a citizen-owned wing of the military. Why does the public separate the two? Like, why does the public have an image of a benevolent monarchy and an oppressive military authoritarian regime as opposed to the one and the same thing and they're in cahoots with one another? I mean, I think that comes from, you know, historical events when, as I mentioned, 1973, there was a student uprising. Um, Pumipon appeared to back the protesters and appeared to support democracy. Um, in 1992, there was, a, there was a similar thing. Now, when you study Thai history deeply, and um, Paul Handley, who wrote one of the best books on Thailand, The King Never Smiles, has, goes into this in detail in his book, and I try to go into it in my book. When you look at these events, the king was actually not really supportive of the democracy protest at all. But he and his advisors were quite opportunist. And when they saw public opinion changing, they kind of rode the tide to some extent. Um, so, so that's the reason. But I think now it's clear that, especially under the current king, you can't really distinguish the military and, and, and the monarchy, especially because, as you say, the king has his kind of army within an army. He's got thousands of soldiers who control Bangkok who report directly to him. And so there is no longer a separation. And it's been very interesting to see how, how this has evolved in Thai consciousness because the Future Forward Party, which is a very reformist party, um, for a long time, it was uh, claiming it only wanted to remove military influence in Thai politics. They didn't mention the monarchy because it was still taboo and it was seen as a step too far to, to openly challenge the monarchy. But the current protests that have just sprung up in the last few months, the protesters are now openly saying, you know, the problem is the monarchy. And that's been a huge development as well. This is, many Thais have, have believed this before, but this is the first time it's been openly said and openly debated, which is really quite extraordinary. But if the monarchy controls moral authority or is the protector of moral authority within Thailand, how does this affect judicial reform in Thailand? Or how does this affect the judiciary's proceedings of understanding what critiquing the monarchy looks like, because it seems as though you're critiquing the authority on which the judicial system is predicated. What does that mean for the justice system in Thailand? Well, I mean, the justice system in Thailand is, has, is severely problematic um, because almost all judges are elderly male royalists. And if, if we look back at uh, the history of Thai politics, We've seen the judiciary time and again stepping in to, to undermine the democracy movement, um, undermine challenges to the, to the monarchy and the military. Um, there have been several judicial, so-called judicial coups, where sometimes when it, when it wasn't, didn't seem morally acceptable for the military to seize power yet again, they'd find a way for the courts to engineer it, to, to dissolve elected governments. Um, you know, famously, one Thai prime minister was removed by the judiciary because he'd accepted nominal payments for appearing on a televised cooking show. And so they removed him. And, of course, uh, they've also dissolved the, the Future Forward Party in, in Thailand over uh, another dubious uh, legal claim. So the judiciary has always really been another arm of the, of the royalist faction in Thailand and has made decisions not based on a kind of um, unbiased rule of law, but it's made decisions to protect that faction. But I'm confused now because if the Future Forward Party was dissolved on a legal claim of money being squandered outside the political sphere and this prime minister was taken out for appearing on a cooking show, why was Thaksin allowed to remain in power for six years? And how is King, the, the, the present king spending money on a yacht and a private property in Bermuda from the same taxpayer money? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the issue of corruption in Thailand has been been weaponized by by the elite. So I think, you know, we've seen successive military governments embezzling money left, right and center. Um, you know, it's quite normal in the elite for, for people to, to take dubious payments. And actually, the whole system in Thailand is, you know, there's a systemic problem because people in public office and police officers and senior military officers, their, their actual notional salary is tiny. Um, and yet they manage to amass fortunes. And the way they do that is by using their, um, you know, informal power or using their influence to, to, to find money in other ways. And this is part of the system. It's a systemic issue. Um, but the judiciary is able to use this, even though it's really widespread, to target political opponents when they want to. So the rule of law is not consistently applied in Thailand. Um, if you're powerful enough, you can get away with almost anything. And for a time, Taksin was until the tide turned against him and all these rulings were made against him and his allies. Um, so really, you know, as I said, there's, there's no rule of law um, in that sense. It's really might is right in Thailand. So if you're powerful enough, you can get away with anything. And if you, they want to target you, they can usually find, because it's such a systemic problem, they can usually find excuses to claim that you're corrupt and to try and remove you from office or put you in jail. I want to take a step back here and talk more about the moral authority of the king or the moral legitimacy of the king, because a lot of Thaification was predicated on spreading the idea of Theravada Buddhism as the main religion in the country. Is that still the bedrock of the monarchy or has it changed to become more of a cultural thing and a historically precedent? Like, has it become more of a historic thing than a religious thing or is religion still deeply conflated in the image of the monarchy? It's still a large religious element, although it's quite interesting that the Thai monarchy is almost a Hindu monarchy rather than a, than a Buddhist one. Um, when you look at its history and the, and the traditions of, of, of the royal cult in Thailand, and they even still have some Brahmin priests that officiate at their ceremonies. Um, so it's almost a religion of its own that, that mingles Buddhism and Hinduism. But, you know, Buddhist nationalism is, is still a key part in Thailand. So you have the religion, you also have nationalism, and, you know, for, for many Thais, Buddhism is an integral part of, of national identity, even though, of course, there's, there's millions of, of Thai Muslims and there's a long-running insurgency in the South, but they're often seen as not really Thai. Um, and it's all bound together in this ideology of Thai-ness, where, where Thais are taught that to be a good Thai, you have to love the king, you have to be Buddhist, um, you have to, you know, show respect to your superiors, you shouldn't say anything that might be negative about the, the, the country or the monarchy. And, and Thais are taught that this is how to behave, this is Thainess. And it's really just a cultural construct to, to support the status quo. And then why is it that students lead most protests, including the 1973 protests and today's protests? If these are the people that are being actively taught what the ideal Thai citizen look like, why are they the people who are actually leading protests for social change? It's an interesting phenomenon, and we don't just see it in Thailand. I, I think it's, it's partly that students are seen as having moral authority, because in, in Thailand, the political class has been demonized. Many Thais are taught that politicians are corrupt and, and venal and always fighting and only think about themselves. And to some extent, that's true. But, but it's been framed in a way that some Thais leaders say, well, we're not political. And of course, they're intensely political. They may not be career politicians. But they're, they're taught, the Thais are taught that politics is bad, politicians are bad, they're only in it for themselves. Students have some kind of moral authority because they're, they're not tainted by that. 
So almost like the, the monarchy, you know, they, they do have a, a special role in Thai politics. And, and, and when, they, when they rise up, it's much harder for, for the regime to crack down on them without serious consequences. It happened in 1976, and that was you know, a disaster that, that could have really toppled the monarchy, but in the end it didn't. But even the monarchy realized they had to be very careful about how they handle the students. So students do have a certain leeway, and, and we've seen that again today, or not, you know, in, in current times, when student protest movement is again at the forefront. Sure. But then if students had moral authority, presumably the same students transition to become the middle class or become the ruling middle class that at some point lead political parties, which is to say that perhaps the 2010 and 2006 protesters at the time, the people that were students have now risen up to form the future forward party. Why is there still a deep distrust of politicians, despite the continuity of persons from 2010 to now that are now leading your political struggle? Yeah, it's, it's partly because, I mean, as you say, so, I mean, some student leaders did become politicians, political leaders, but we've also seen quite a quite significant ideological change as some of these protest leaders get older. So when you look at the 1976 generation, who are a famous generation in Thailand, where they, they tried to stand up against the military rule, it, and, you know, they, there was a terrible massacre that led to years of, of um, oppression in Thailand. Many of them over time became strongly royalist and conservative. And it's quite an interesting phenomenon to see how many young radicals in Thailand have ended up as old conservatives and old royalists. Um, and one reason for that, I think, was the rise of Taksin Shinawat, the, uh, the telecoms tycoon who, who took over power at the start of this, uh, of this um, century and um, became an immensely polarizing figure. Now, he certainly was quite corrupt, even by Thai standards. He was shaking things up by you know, trying to take influence away from royal networks. And a lot of Thais who'd formerly been quite, quite um, progressive came to hate Taksin, um, partly because they also have an idea that there was a mythological golden age in Thailand before it was corrupted by capitalism, and Thailand should go back to this mythical golden age. Taksin was seen as, as somebody who, you know, epitomizes the evils of, of capitalism. So the, the Thai royalist movement is really interesting. Um, it's a really disparate coalition of some militarists and ultra-nationalists on the right, and some kind of formerly progressive um, people on the left who, who are really anti-capitalist and who see the monarchy as a kind of guarantor that Thailand could, could retain this kind of mythical pre-capitalist status. So it's 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 really interesting place. Um, you know, it's uh, on both sides actually that the alliances are always shifting amongst different groups, and you have people that would seem to have quite disparate ideological positions, allying on each side. This does seem weird, and I do think that we could end up having a discussion on just the right wing and the left wing politics in Thailand forever and ever. So I want to drop that for now because sure. I, I reckon we 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 will get drowned out in it. I want to talk a bit about the less majestic law. So you've spoken about mm -hmm. it before. What is the law and why does it hold any form of legal legitimacy? Well, I mean, it's, it's part of the Thai Criminal Code. It's Article 112 of the Thai Criminal Code. And it states that anybody who insults or, or defames the king, the queen or the heir apparent or the regent um, faces up to 15 years in, in prison. Um, so so it's, it's, it's actually embodied in Thai law. That's, that's the, where it has its legal force. 
Um, but over the years, it was weaponized by the judiciary and by the elite and by the monarchy to target anybody that, that questioned the status quo. So you saw remarkable um, judgments where people were, were jailed for, for really trivial things, for saying something apparently trivial. Um, and because everybody was so terrified of, of the monarchy, nobody really challenged it. And it created a climate of fear that has really chilled debate in Thailand for many years. Now, um, at its height, there was never a huge amount of people jailed. There are far more jailed than should have been. But it was always done in a quite a targeted way to really to strike fear into people. Um, every year, a small number of, or relatively small number of people would be made an example of under this law uh, and, and face often extremely long sentences. And once you're charged with less majesty, it's very rare to, to be able to escape and be, be found not guilty. Almost everybody gets found guilty and ends up with a jail sentence. Um, so for a long time, this was one of the key tools in the armory of the elite. Um, using this law to, to ensure that, you know, dissent couldn't really emerge. And, you know, anybody who questioned the status quo could be branded anti-monarchy. Anti and that was extremely dangerous to be, given, to be given that reputation. But who enforces this law? Is it the military? Is it the Thai royal police? Or who is in charge of ensuring the strategic application of less majestic? Well, it was usually disparate groups of the elite. So the judiciary would often act... Um, on the instructions of, of, of the palace and the military. Um, a, a scholar called Duncan McCargo developed a really influential um, theory that explains Thai politics quite well. Um, he, he talks about the network monarchy in Thailand under King Pumipon, um, which meant that there wasn't a formal organization, but a large number of royalists are top through judiciary and politics and military and in the palace. They informally you know, had an understanding that they should try and protect the status quo. And one way to do that was, was with the application of the Les Majestés law. Um, but you know, often when you had a more authoritarian government coming into power, the law would be more strongly enforced. It partly depends on the government of the day. So in the years up until the, the Yingluck government was overthrown and, and taxing was overthrown, there are much fewer Les Majestés charges. And then since those days, we've seen many more charges being put in place until 2017, though, because very interestingly, in, in 2017, a well-known Thai radical scholar, um, Sulak Sivarak, he held some meetings with the Thai king, the Jirongkorn, and he, you know, he's, he, he's had himself many Les Majestés charges in the past, and he was partly able to escape them because he was a member of the elite himself. He convinced Jirongkorn it was a bad idea that was actually damaging the monarchy to, 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 to weaponize Les Majesté law in this way. Um, and the king appeared to agree. So for, as far as we know, he ordered in 2017 that use of this law should, should be dropped. Um, now, royalists had always claimed before that the palace had nothing to do with the law. It was just up to the government and up to the police and up to the judiciary. And, and, and they, they often even claimed that King Kumipon didn't even support Les Majesté law, but was kind of helpless to, um, to prevent people being charged. We've seen that's not true because after King Jir Longhorn said that law shouldn't be used, um, it, it stopped. But that hasn't changed um, you know, the freedom of speech environment in Thailand because they have several other very harsh laws. There's a computer crimes law that states that almost anything you say using an electronic device that could be construed as, as criminal can land you in jail for years. And there's a sedition law that's being increasingly widely used. So we're still seeing people jailed for, for just sharing their, their reasonable opinions, but it's no, longer being, it's no longer mainly the Les Majestés law that's a primary weapon being used against them. They're using other laws to do that now.
I'm assuming that this was much more harshly implemented after 2014 and after the military coup of 2014. Uh, what's the role of journalism and free acting journalists and free speech in ensuring either democracy or just the stability of the Thai regime? Well, I mean, it's always been my view, and of course I'm biased as a journalist, it's always been my view that Thailand can never really be stable or free until Thais are able to air these issues freely and also they're able to, to really understand their own history and their own politics. And while the country is, is, is kind of policing this fake, you know, fake ideology, fake history, things could never, you know, things could never progress. So back in 2011, I made the decision I was working as a journalist at Reuters at that time, and it was one of the things that was very frustrating about covering Thailand, even as a foreign journalist, was that even the foreign media were very afraid of the Les Majesty law, and they tried to avoid writing anything about Thailand that could, or about the monarchy that could appear controversial. Um, now, it became clear to me that you can't cover Thai history and Thai politics properly without mentioning the monarchy. You know, it's, it's like the writing the story of the Titanic without mentioning the iceberg. Um, you know, it's, it's an integral part of the story. And I think this is why many people found it hard to understand Thai politics for so long. And who are the red shirts and yellow shirts and what's this all about? As you mentioned, it's not really left versus right often. It's, it's much more complicated. And it's because this huge part of the story is being left out. So I made the decision back in 2011 to um, start writing openly about the Thai monarchy. And to do that, I had to break the law and I had to leave my job at Reuters. So I became an international criminal because I can't go back to Thailand, I'll be jailed. Um, I became unemployed for some time because uh, I, I left my job. But I thought it's essential to do it because unless people are, are, are writing, the, you know, and trying to write accurately and honestly about what's happening, the country can't really get out of this crisis, this long ongoing crisis, because people are not even able to debate the important issues. And when you can't have a, a rational and sensible and respectful debate about something, that's when you see eruptions of violence and conflict and so on. Um, so I think it's really essential to try and promote accurate reporting about Thailand. It's what I've tried to do. And I'm really pleased to see actually that over the it's been nearly a decade since I, since I did this, we're now seeing many more media around the world um, writing much more openly and honestly about the Thai monarchy. So that's a really useful trend. We don't see it in domestic media yet, um, which is understandable. But I think the environment now is so different even from, from five or ten years ago in the sense of how much the international media are reporting on Thailand. And thanks to social media and the internet, many Thais are able to access this information as well. So there's been a huge change. I'm so glad that there is actually a generation of young progressives that are connecting with objective journalism, such as your book and the book of many more radical journalists that are trying to transparently cover Thailand. What is it like as an individual who is persecuted under the less majestic law? What does it feel like? And uh, did you flee the country as soon as you realized you were writing the book? Did you write the book, then flee the country? How was it like? Well, I was, I was based in Singapore at the time, but I, was, uh, I used to travel to Thailand quite often. And I love Thailand. You know, I mean, that's one reason I got involved in this whole thing at, at the start. I often get accused of you know, hating Thailand while you're trying to undermine Thailand. You know, if I, if I couldn't stand Thailand, I wouldn't have spent so long writing about it. And I certainly wouldn't have given up my, my job in order to do it. Um, but the experience for me was relatively painless because I was already in Singapore. Um, so when I, when I decided to resign from Reuters and start writing uh, these articles, these books, I knew I could never go back to Thailand. 
um, which is really sad um, because because I do love the country and you know I have I, my wife is Thai and I have family links to Thailand so it's it's a very sad situation. We we have faced quite significant persecution. Um, my wife visited Thailand back in 2016 with my son. They were detained just because of my journalism and we were really concerned about their their safety. Luckily, there was a bit of an international outcry about it and they were released, but, but they had to leave the country. Um, I get a lot of abuse on social media. I get some death threats I don't take seriously. Uh, my house was recently surveilled and, uh, and a threatening package was left on my doorstep. So, so these are kind of the realities of doing it for me. But for Thais, it's, it's even harder. You know, Thais who've, who've been accused of Les Majesty, um, they're almost always forced to plead guilty and then seek a royal pardon. That's really the only way to, 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 to beat this, or you, you can't beat it, but that's the only way to get a shorter sentence. Anybody who tries to fight it in court ends up having an awful time and can disappear into the prison system for many years. And others have to flee. So, you know, especially after the 2014 coup, we saw a whole new set of ties having to flee the country, going into exile. Um, they're also smeared as hating the country and, you know, trying to being allied with malign foreign interests trying to destabilize Thailand, um, which of course is simply not true because it, almost everybody I know who's doing this is doing it because they want to see positive change in Thailand and they're doing it because they really care about Thailand. And the narrative that there's this kind of shadowy international conspiracy of people who for some reason have decided to try and destroy Thailand, it's just absurd, but this is the narrative that's pushed by the regime um, to try to get Thais to, to ignore us and silence us. Are the hearings for Les Majeste public, as in, are they recorded? Are they done in camera or not? It's really shadowy. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it varies. But in many cases, they're, they're not public. And even to the extent they are public, often the, the actual offence can't be properly discussed in, in, in entire media because even repeating what somebody else has said, even to say, I think it was terrible that that Andrew Marshall has said this about the monarchy, if you say that publicly, you could also be um, charged with this majesty just for repeating it, even, even to criticize it. So it's a really murky process. There was no real due process at all. And as I say, you know, once people have, have a Les majesty charge, they're in a really difficult situation. They either have to flee the country or, or face the inevitability of a significant jail sentence. And the only real way to shorten your sentence is to plead guilty, say, I'm terribly sorry, I should never have done it. Um, and then you might get a shorter sentence, um, but at the risk of having to you know, undermine your own principles. I'm also going to assume that most large news media conglomerates are owned by the elite that are in this network of monarchy along with the king, which is to say that all the coverage of the less majesty law and the, the narratives around the king are controlled by the elite themselves, creating a self-perpetuating system of propping up the king and propping up the Thai monarchy to uphold the law. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. right. You've, you've put it so well that I don't, I don't really have to add right. much to that point. But uh, yeah, they, I mean, the, the Thai media, and even, even though many individual journalists, you know, hated the Les Majesty Law and wanted to write more, there was just no way they could do it. It, it wasn't safe for them. And even, even today, and, you know, we know that, I mean, there's, there's been several instances recently where the palace has explicitly intervened, called up editors in Thailand, for example, editors all through Thailand were, were told a few months ago, don't write about the demands of the, of the protesters. Um, you shouldn't mention the demands for reforming the monarchy. Now, very interestingly, though, they've had to, you know, the, the media, even, even more conservative domestic media have had to start referencing it to some extent 
because these protests have gathered such momentum that you, you know you can't really ignore it anymore but there continues to be a climate of fear about writing about the monarchy so you often you know you often see incomplete stories and this is one reason why Thai politics is so hard to understand because such a big part of the story is, is always being left out and what makes these protests different why are these protests different from the protests in 2006 against the anti-coup against Thaksin in the protest in 2010 the protest in 1973 what makes these protests special and are they primed for success or any constructive change well i think the key difference is that they've for the first time really in thai history they've openly said they want reform of the monarchy now we haven't really seen anything like that since the 1932 era um and even back then though it was much more coded you didn't see open calls for reform of the monarchy so to see so many people openly coming out to challenge the monarchy and also mocking the monarchy, which is a remarkable development, because in these protests, you've seen people wearing, you know, lots of people wearing crop tops because the king has quite unusual fashion tastes and he's been photographed wearing crop tops several times and, and low slung trousers and fake tattoos. So some of the protesters were, you know, were, were mimicking that. Many of the banners they, they were sharing were really quite provocative. And that's really, I think, one of the, one of the key things the protesters, you know, they're much bolder than I think protesters ever have been in, in modern Thai history before. They're targeting the monarchy explicitly. They're prepared to speak openly. Um, and to me, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, it's, it really is a, a watershed moment. Um, unfortunately, I don't see a happy outcome in the, in, in the medium term. In, in the long run, I think it's inevitable that the monarchy and the military will have to reform. Partly because even though we've seen a lot of setbacks to democracy over, over recent decades around the world, I think there still is a general underlying trend that most people as a country develops tend to expect to have, you know, better rule of law, more rights, more equality under the law. So there'll always be that pressure. Uh, the other key thing is that the king is 68 and, and when he dies, there's no obvious successor who can continue this kind of reign of fear or can continue the power of the, of, of the monarchy. So it's almost a doomed and, and futile effort to, to hold on to power when, you know, there's a, t there's a ticking clock because the king you know, might, may survive a few more decades, but after that, they can't win really. But in the medium term, the, the king is known to be absolutely irate about these protests. He's surrounded himself by really hawkish generals who are also, you know, highly opposed to the protests. There's no um, prospect of them really giving any ground at all. So I do fear that we're heading towards, you know, another bloody confrontation in Bangkok. And there are actually quite strong echoes of 1976 that really are quite worrying. I really hope it doesn't come to that. But there is factionalism mm. between the protesters, which is that there is a faction of protesters that is advocating and blatantly crying out for change of the monarchy and reform of the monarchy. But there is another probably larger faction of protesters that are still not touching the subject of the monarchy. What does this mean for the monarchy reform protesters and do they need more solidarity? Well, yeah, I mean, some more, you know, more conservative ties who are sympathetic towards the protesters argue they're going too far. Um, so Titanan Pogsuritak, who's, who's uh, a very well-known Thai commentator and an academic at Chulongkot University, he's been writing several op-eds recently arguing that if they focus too narrowly on the monarchy, they risk losing support and they should seek you know, wider reform that can bring in a, a bigger coalition of people. 
the counter argument is that until you reform the monarchy, you can't really reform anything else in Thailand because it's really, it's the apex of the pyramid and all many of the other abuses in Thailand stem from the fact that we have an unaccountable king and an unaccountable elite really controlling things and, and refusing to allow democratic reform. So, you know, there's arguments on both sides. And, and one thing that's hard to gauge because, you know, many people are afraid to speak out is what's the level of support for the protesters among the wider population? My sense is that it's actually quite quite large and, and much higher than some conservative commentators think because we know that the king is desperately unpopular among a huge um, wave of Thai society even interestingly among you know Thai royalists Thai royalists are some of the ones who hate the king most of all uh, because they can see that he's unsuitable and he, that he might damage the monarchy and in the long run he's very detrimental to their interests so privately, many Thai royalists don't like him. Um, and certainly the wider population is highly unpopular. Thai opinion polls on this subject are kind of unreliable because nobody's going to answer honestly. And they're often done by quite conservative institutions and institutes and think tanks. Um, so they're often quite skewed. But really interestingly, even some of these opinion polls in, in, in recent months have shown majority support for the protesters, which I find remarkable because I think they're probably underestimating it, but they're still saying that a majority of people broadly support the protesters. And lastly, another piece of anecdotal evidence that I find interesting is that ahead of every movie screening in Thailand in the cinema, they play the royal anthem. And it was mandatory that everybody had to stand for the royal anthem to pay respects for the king. Now, about 10 years ago, uh, an activist refused to stand for the royal anthem. It was a huge issue in Thailand. Um, he faced legal charges. He was widely denounced. Um, nowadays, according to you know, many of my sources in Thailand who go to the movies, most people don't bother to stand anymore. And it's fine. There's, 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 there was one confrontation recently where a royalist member of the audience got angry and, and sprayed water at somebody. But Really, it's just accepted now that it's, it's normal and people just stopped standing for the monarchy. So, so that shows me that there's been a real near complete collapse of, of faith in the monarchy or certainly in the current king in Thailand, um, which is a really interesting development. But I would assume, again, based on the demography of the protesters, this is probably just young generational radicals in Thailand. What about the middle class and what about people outside Bangkok? What are their sentiments towards the monarchy right now? Well, it's quite interesting because outside Bangkok, in the north and northeast of Thailand, which were the red shirt strongholds and, and strongholds of support for tax in Shinawat, really the monarchy's popularity has been collapsing for, for, for years. Because one of the precursors to the current situation is that after the crackdown in 2010 on the red shirt protest, many red shirts started much more openly criticizing the monarchy and, and, and they lost their faith in the monarchy. Um, that was a really interesting development because a lot of the red shirts and people in the North and Northeast for years, they'd seen the monarchy as this kind of benevolent force that helped protect them from a, a venal military and, and venal politicians. But that changed. Also in the Deep South, of course, we have this insurgency that's been going on for, for decades. Um, so, so, you know, the popularity of, of, of the monarchy in those areas is, is fairly low. So, I think um, and when it comes to middle class, you know, a lot of Thai parents, especially if, if their children are protesting, they're worried about their career prospects, they're worried about stability. Um, I know a lot of older Thais who privately agree with the, the protesters, um, but they've been indoctrinated or they've learned as a survival mechanism, just don't rock the boat. 
you know, is it worth it? That's often the argument. You know, we all don't like the king. Is it worth making a fuss about it? You could end up in jail. You could end up worse. You know, don't bother. So there is a sense of inertia from that. But, you know, I think, you know, there, there is a strong desire for, for reform. And of course, it's being exacerbated by the impact of the pandemic in Thailand at the moment. The country is facing severe economic pain, even though its number of cases has been quite low, but its economy is highly dependent on tourism and that's completely collapsed. So, you know, the, the economic arguments, I think, are, are help fueling unrest and, and, and fueling opposition to, to the regime. And in your opinion, what do the protesters have to do to, for their protest to translate into actual tangible change? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, would, I would say that in one sense, there already has been tangible change in the sense that a huge border has been crossed. It's hard to see how Thailand can now go back to an era in which people can't air grievances about the monarchy. People can't discuss these issues openly because it's happened and you can't, you can't put the genie back into the bottle. So in that sense, I think what they've done has had a lasting impact in Thailand. But I think it'll probably take years to percolate through to actual political change. Um, I expect over time we'd see growing public disenchantment with the military, with the monarchy, and with these puppet governments that, that, that the regime has been installing. I mean, the current government is really a, a puppet of the military and, and monarchy, even though it was supposedly democratically elected using very skewed rules that basically fixed the elections to ensure that they could win. So there'll be growing disenchantment with this. And over time, you'd hope that this would translate into recognition amongst the elite that they have to reform and they have to change. Um, but as mentioned, because I think the, um, the king and the military um, are going to be so intransigent, it's quite hard to see it happening, you know, in the, in the medium term without confrontation and violence, which would be terribly sad. If there is a violent confrontation, as we've seen so many times before, it could actually be the end of the regime, because I'm not sure in the current international climate, when it would be widely reported, I'm not sure if the regime could survive, you know, shooting people on the streets of Bangkok en masse again. Um, but hopefully that won't, it won't come to that. So we would see more gradual change. Um, but I think one of the most significant con contributions of the protesters has just been to get this debate happening um, because it's taken off this, this chilling factor that's kept Thailand in suspended animation for so long. The fact that you're not allowed to mention the monarchy, you're not allowed to, to really talk about the structural factors that's holding Thailand back. The protesters have already changed that forever. So that's already a pretty significant um, step forward. And what reforms do you think need to be made to either the monarchy or the military or both in order to ensure that there is a sustainable democracy in Thailand? Well, I think clearly we just need, you know, fair rule of law and freedom of speech and equality under the law, which is going to be a huge change because, um, you know, for decades, the military and monarchy have been abusing the system, um, using judiciary and others in the elite. Um, Thais know that there are judicial double standards. Um, they know that if a government is elected that the regime don't like, they'll find ways to bring it down. And the only way to stop that is by bringing them under the law. Um, but that's going to be extremely difficult because, of course, you know, the, the monarchy is it's an anathema to them to, to be put under the rule of law. The military are the ones with the guns. Um, and, of course, many senior figures in military and in the palace you know, have been responsible for quite significant crimes um, over over recent years and recent decades, the last thing they want is seeing themselves under the rule of law where they might be accountable for what they've done. 
So it's, it's a necessary change. Um, I hope it can happen gradually without confrontation, but it will be really difficult to, to, to happen. Um, it, it will really require quite a significant shift in, in, in people's thinking. But we are seeing people's thinking shifting significantly, so that's a good start. And just lastly, including your own book, and you've mentioned several other books in the course of this episode, are there any books or any popular media that you would recommend for people to read up on or access in order to better understand Thailand today? Sure. Well, um, The King Never Smiles by Paul Handley is a, is a seminal book, and I'd recommend it to everybody who wants to understand Thailand better. Um, Paul was a journalist in Thailand for many years, and he really bravely decided to, to write a book. And so he's never able to go back to Thailand again. And what he did, he published it back in 2006, and he was really the first, or one of the first, to do so. Um, and it helped inspire me to do, what, to, to do what I did. So I definitely recommend that. Um, there are as a, some younger scholars who are, who are doing great work, include Claudio Sopranzetti, who I believe you've spoken to, who's an anthropologist. Um, Andrew, jo Andrew Johnson, um, Eugenie Merio is another a, a French scholar who's, who's done really good work. So we're seeing a lot more academic work being done. And we've also seen a new, you know, a new wave of online media outlets, domestic media outlets in Thailand emerging that are doing great work. So Prachatai was really the precursor, and they have an English language um, news service that's always worth following. Uh, Kausot English is another good news service to watch. And there are two new online um, outlets, um, staffed mainly by Thais, writing in English, uh, Disrupt and Thai Inquirer. And so they're pushing the envelope of what domestic media can say, which is, which is really good. You have to supplement that by looking at international media. And probably, dare I say it, you know, if people are really interested in Thailand, they should follow people like me and, and Somsak Jim Tuasakun and others who are outside Thailand, but trying to you know, write things that others can't write. Um, but it's, it's really heartening to see how much better coverage of Thailand has become in the past 10 years. Um, it used to be really fairly dismal, and thing, the situation is a lot better now. So for those interested in finding out more of it, there's plenty of resources you can look at. Well, thank you so much. And I would highly recommend following Andrew on Twitter because he's excellent as a source of news for what's going on in Thailand. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think this has been incredibly informative and incredibly eye-opening as to what the monarchy looks like in Thailand. And I do hope, and because I'm outside Thailand, I can say this, I do hope that the protest materialized to some tangible change. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for all your very good questions.